you so much. Please do sit down. Thank you so much. How's this sounding? Sounding all right? Yes? A little bit like I'm in a cave, but I'm sure if it doesn't improve, Steve, hand me one of those radio mics. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. I hope you're doing well. I just so love um, hearing Royden's heart for finances. It's not just about money. It's about how we can transform lives and society ultimately. So great to hear that. Um, just so you, you're aware, um, where different members of the team are this morning, we've got a number of different people in different locations. So Simon has been out in Turkey and is still there with the team. And uh, this morning he's in Yalova, which is uh, near Istanbul. I know you knew where that was, but just, just in case the person next to you didn't know where Yalova was. It's Istanbul, and he's been ministering out there. And he's been going with Simon Dwight, who heads up our social action work. And they've just been looking into the refugee crisis out there and p forming potential links. Uh, Wendy, meanwhile, uh, she's in London uh, with the team and ministering down there. And uh, Phil, meanwhile, uh, is in bed because uh, he's sick with shingles. So I'm standing in for him this morning. So yeah, I know, it's rough. So I thought we'd just start, and I'm going to pray for them and those different situations and for us. Does that sound all right? Yeah. So Father, we thank you so much for all that you are doing, not just in this country, but right across the globe. Thank you, Father, for the work in Turkey and uh, the work the churches are doing there to to meet the needs of refugees from Syria and Iraq. Father, we pray for your hand of favor and blessing on them. Father, we pray for, uh, pray for the whole church there and pray for our links and connections with them. Would friendship grow and also the opportunity to offer support in that situation. Father, we pray for Wendy down in London that she might be able to minister in power and see many people set free this morning. We thank you for her. What a gift she is to us as a church, but to many churches too. And Father, we pray for Phil. Um, as he's sick in bed. Father, we uh, speak healing and strength to his body, and we say, shingles, go in the name of Jesus. Be restored and be made well, we pray. Father, be with us in all these different situations, we pray as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good stuff. Well, um, you may not be aware of it, but either consciously or subconsciously, when uh, someone stands up to talk, we generally, in our minds, are thinking questions like, uh, how relevant is this subject to me? Is this subject that they're talking about, is that going to apply to my life and my situation? Is it, is it going to be relevant to, to my circumstances in life? And so rather than you spend the first five minutes figuring out if it's going to be relevant, I thought I would help you. And the way I'm going to do this is um, I'm going to put up a factual statement on the screen. And then what I want you to do is just give a gut-level, instinctive, emotional response as to whether or not you think this subject's going to apply to you, okay? So the statement going up on the screen is this. If you want to put it up on the screen, this is a factual statement. There are now only six Saturdays before Christmas. Six Saturdays between now and Christmas, okay? I wonder what kind of emotional response that has drawn from you, that piece of information. Some of you are looking quite aggressively at me, actually, as I share that, but uh, just take it easy for a moment. So two possible emotional responses. Are you in category A, which might be this? Yay, Christmas is nearly here. How exciting. I can't wait for the chance to catch up with family, open presents together, and celebrate. Okay, not so much. Okay, one or two of you, all right. Okay, how about B? B, emotional response is this. Six weeks to Christmas. I feel a little bit sick right now. How am I going to get everything done? Just keep that kind of information to yourself, Paul, yeah? I wonder how many of you are in that category. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm in A or I'm in B. Have Turn to them, have a quick conversation. Which is most like you?
Okay. Should we do a little straw poll? Let's just do a show of hands. Let's start with B, okay? How many of you most identify with B? Put a hand in the air. Okay, a, a good number of you. Well, you need to know this morning is relevant for you, okay? Because we're starting a series called Simplify, where we're looking at trying to simplify our lives, and we're looking at how to do the most important things in life well. And this morning, we're going to look at the whole subject of workload that you're under, okay? So this morning is definitely for you. Just out of interest, how many of you put your hand up to A? How many would you do that? Okay, a good number of you, you cheery lot. Okay, you're now the prayer team, all right? And... Um, <laughs> You've got a lot of work to do at the end, all right? So we're going to look at Luke, we're in the Gospel of Luke. So you've got a Bible with you, turn there with me. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, and we'll be looking at the story of Mary and Martha, and unpacking that. There's some tremendous wisdom in just a few short verses. Um, this is from the ESV, I'm going to read it to you. Just so you know, by way of background, um, the home of Mary and Martha seems to have been something of a way station, a, a, a place of refuge and replenishment for Jesus and the disciples. We know that from John's Gospel too. And so it's a familiar place just outside Bethlehem that um, the disciples and Jesus would often go to. And we get just this wonderful little domestic interaction um, going on in this story. So it goes like this. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him, him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. That's so poignant, isn't it? It could be written over our society. He goes on, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So when you come across little stories like this, you've got to ask yourself, why is this in Scripture? Why has the Lord allowed this to be reported? And I suggest to you the reason is that since that day in first century Palestine, there have been millions of Marthas and millions of Marys. And we're meant to look at their lives and learn lessons from them. So this morning, we're going to play a little game which is called uh, Mary or Martha, which is most like you, okay? And that's what we're going to be doing this morning. And the way I imagine it was going to go is that around 90% of us are going to realize that we're actually quite a bit like Martha, myself included. And then we're going to be horribly convicted. And then there's going to be all kinds of repenting and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's going to be an absolute blast. You're going to love every minute. Does that sound okay? You're up for that? At least two of you are. So I'm going to plow on regardless. Um, so Jesus... Um, is, is turned up, has turned up at Martha's house. And we've got to, got to understand the scene and what's really going on here. Um, Jesus has turned up with the disciples at Martha's house. And uh, I think it's fair to say that we can, we can be sure that Jesus hasn't telephoned ahead to say he's coming, okay? It's not directly in the text, but I think that's, we're confident of that. He hasn't sent a text. So the chances are he has pitched up unannounced at Mary and Martha's house. But he has turned up with a whole bunch of other people. He hasn't come alone. And, and so Martha immediately goes into this sort of whirlwind, slight panic, and dashes into the kitchen and begins trying to organize this massive meal for everybody. And I think we can safely say that her demeanor in the kitchen wasn't so much Nigella Lawson, you know, where she, she's just gently stirring a souffle or something in a ball gown. I think it was a bit more Gordon Ramsay, you know, so she's dashing around and shouting and, you know, and perhaps even swearing at people around her. She's in a real fluster and a panic, and she's thinking to herself, you know, there were three of us for dinner, and now there's 33. You know, I've got 
33 Christians in the house. What on earth am I going to cook? I know, quiche. You know, and so she's dashing around thinking, I'm going to cook some quiche. And thinks, oh, I'll microwave it. That'll save time. Oh, no, the microwave hasn't been invented. I'll have to do something else. And so she's there, and she's perhaps chopping vegetables with one hand and, and stirring a saucepan with the other. And, you know, with her foot, she's opening the oven door. And she's in a mad, mad panic. And then all of a sudden, she comes to her senses and looks around. And she thinks to herself, where's Mary? I'm in here slaving away. Where's Mary? She's got a responsibility to be in here helping me. And so all of a sudden, it's not just a saucepan that boils over, but Martha herself boils over. And she comes in, possibly aggressive and angry, and she goes straight up to Jesus, and she says to Jesus, Lord, do you not care? And she says, Lord, do you not care because my sister should be helping me? Now, just a little tip for you. Anytime you are telling off Jesus, the, the chances are you've gone off track somewhere, okay? It, it just, that's a little indicator, but that's just for free, all right? It's Martha melting down in this situation. And I think we can look at that and we can see so many similarities to us, particularly in our fast-paced modern world. So I want us to look at this character of Martha and then at Mary and say, well, what can we learn from them? How much... Are they like us? To what extent are we like them? Let's start off with Martha and start off with the positives because there are some positives here. Firstly, uh, Martha is hospitable, which is wonderful. She regularly hosts Jesus and the disciples in her home. And that's, that's very much to be encouraged. There's a, there's a generosity of spirit about this lady. Not only that, but she's honest too. I love the way she can go up to Jesus and tell Jesus exactly what she thinks. That's really commendable. And lastly, of course, she's an activator. She's a doer. She gets on and does stuff. She makes things happen. But as with many activators, she's possibly slightly overambitious from time to time. And what seems to happen is her perceived sense of responsibility for this whole situation sends her into a downward spiral. And it, it ends up in a very bad place for her. And maybe you can just track with me what happens to her, and see if any of it resonates with you, or if not with you, possibly the person next to you, okay? So we're going to look at this downward spiral, all right? Just nudge the person next to you and say, better pay attention, I think you've got issues, all right? So just, <laughs> just get them on board, and we're going to go through and see what happens to Martha in this circumstance. Okay, you ready? Here's how it starts out. It starts out with her high degree of responsibility. So she lives with this sense that I, I want to serve, I want to make a difference, I want to contribute. Now this story isn't anti-serving. If you notice in your Bibles, it comes right after the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus is actively promoting practical service of one another. And after all, if we're a church family, as we are, then each one of us has a responsibility to practically serve the others in this family. And I would encourage you with all my heart to play your part, whether it's you know, stacking chairs on a Sunday or helping park cars or look after the children. Each one of us has a part to play. No, it's not anti-serving, but rather Jesus wants to address her issues of responsibility. You see, all of us sit on a spectrum of one sort. At one end, there'll be abdication, like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Sort of in the middle, there will be a healthy sense of responsibility and commitment towards others. But at the far end, there will be over-responsibility, which is where Martha's landing. And as a wise person once said, it's so often the case that our greatest weaknesses are our strengths over-emphasized. 
Our greatest weaknesses are our strengths overemphasized. So, for instance, um, if you are something of a pastor and you have a natural sensitivity towards how others are doing, and you're quite empathetic with them, if you overemphasize that, means that you become overly sensitive to the needs of others, but also overly sensitive personally, and you will be quite easily hurt by others. And you're going to have to work hard at not carrying offense. So you want to watch that that doesn't get overemphasized. Similarly, there are many people here who would have something of a spiritual gift of discernment. You're able to very quickly understand people's motives, where they're coming from. You can kind of see behind the veneer. But exaggerated discernment, actually the flip side of that is judgment. And you're going to have to watch that you don't just see what's going on, but that you don't make judgments about people as well. For Martha, she has a healthy sense of responsibility. There'll be many of us here like that. We notice the gaps. We see when things aren't being done properly or things aren't being covered. We notice those gaps. But then that can very quickly dip into over-responsibility where we think, I've seen a gap, therefore I must fill that gap. I must do something about it. And so that's the beginning of the slippery slope for Martha. That then quickly leads into the next problem, which I suggest to you is self-reliance. You see, Martha sees the gaps and then thinks, it must be down to me to find the solution. If you're a highly capable person here this morning, then you're going to need to watch out because the danger will be that if you see a problem, you think, I must solve this with my own resources. That's exactly what Martha is doing. Psalm 33 says this, A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. In other words, don't just depend on your own resources, you, you know, your horse or your, your bank balance or your skills or your intellect or your abilities. Your hope ultimately has to be in what God can do and his ability to save you, not your trusting in yourself to save you. From self-reliance, then it's only a short journey into major stress and exhaustion. Jesus says over her that she's anxious and troubled about many things. You see, a big part of the problem is that Martha is busy doing things that Jesus hasn't asked her to do. I wonder how many of us in this room are extremely busy doing a whole load of things that Jesus hasn't asked you to do. And the real risk of busyness is that we end up with a full diary and an empty heart. You end up emotionally fatigued. You haven't got the ability to give to those around you. Because after all, think about it for a moment. What is the activity that Martha is engaged in? She's engaged in last-minute mass catering with few resources. That's what she's trying to do. She's trying to do mass catering last minute with not many resources. Who does she know who's rather good at mass catering last minute with loads of resources, yeah? Who does she know? Jesus is sat in the next room. He can fix the... All she's got to do is open the freezer, get out a few fish fingers, half a loaf of hovis, and he's away. He can feed 5,000 people. it would be covered. So often we're trying to do the very things that Jesus is wanting to do. We're trying to play the role of Jesus. And it, unsurprisingly, it doesn't work out so well for us. Some of us here this morning are absolutely exhausted. Not the kind of tiredness that goes away with a good night's sleep, but a bone weariness, right to the very core of our being. And maybe your pattern is that you tend to work really, really hard, and then you collapse. And you don't 
you don't actually fully relax and recharge. You just distract yourself for a while, veg out, and then you feel guilty about that. And so you pick yourself up by your bootstraps again and then plow on, working really, really hard. And one of the symptoms of that is that you don't know how to pace yourself. Why? Because you're running on your own agenda rather than on Jesus's. You see, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus doesn't come to bring you exhaustion. He comes to bring you life. And it's time to step off the treadmill of your own making and instead be yoked next to him. So Martha is stressed and anxious. I wonder if this is ringing any bells for you. The next bit in the downward spiral is this. is Martha then very quickly starts to compare her workload to her sister's and realizes that her sister has it easy by comparison. And it's only a short step from there into self-pity and feeling justified in judging her sister. You see, comparing yourself to others always ends up in disaster. It'll either end up in pride or it'll end up in self-pity like it does for Martha. And she starts to resent her sister's perceived inactivity. And she thinks that she's doing the right thing and her sister's doing the wrong thing. We have to watch this in ourselves. Ever since I've been a Christian, I've been involved in practical service of one sort or another. And I tend, if I'm not careful, I can judge people who I don't think are serving in the way that they should. And then this, of course, leads to the final step in Martha's downward spiral. She ends up questioning whether or not God cares. She ends up questioning Jesus' integrity and compassion. That's how bad it gets. Lord, don't you care that you've left me to serve alone in the kitchen. She's utterly overwhelmed and ends up doubting God. See, the problem is Martha's had a plan. Her plan was feed Jesus and the disciples. Now, I don't know her motivations, but maybe she was wanting to do that so that they would speak well of her. You know, she's wanting them to all be pleased and say, I don't know how you, you pulled off this miracle in the kitchen. You know, and then she'll be able to say, oh, well, it was nothing, and they'll all be delighted, and then she can go away and write the cookbook baking for Jesus or whatever, you know, and she'll be famous. And I don't know, maybe, I don't know what was going on in her heart. But perhaps it was she was looking for affirmation and praise from people of what she's achieved and what she's done. But then it all becomes too much for her. And what she wants is then Jesus to help her with her plan. She wants Jesus to help get on her side and do what she wants, rather than her serving what Jesus has got for her. So that's just a snapshot of Martha. I wonder, do you see yourself in there at all? Because if so, Mary might give us some solutions. So let's look just at the remainder of our time at Mary together. Well, the first thing is this, is I want to say to you that Mary wasn't doing nothing. Now, forgive the, the grammar, you know, and the grammar police will be on my case for that, the split infinitive. But Mary wasn't doing nothing. In other words, Mary wasn't being passive by being with Jesus. She was actually making a conscious decision. Verse 42, Jesus says, Mary has chosen. She makes active choices in a society which at the time wouldn't have supported women going to receive teaching. The truth is the easiest thing for Mary would have actually been to have gone to the kitchen and helped. That's what people would have expected of her. And yet she chooses to be with Jesus. And in doing so, she crosses a social boundary. And we, we tend to remember moments when people do things that are socially unconventional. I remember one time I was at a wedding, and uh, there was a, a guy there who had, I guess his son would have been about two years old, and uh, partway through the service, the son tugs on his trouser leg, and I watched him as, as he leaned in and listened to, to his son, 
And uh, then uh, it was clear that his son wanted to go to the toilet, so he picks up the son and carries him off to the toilet, all of which would be fine, except that the man was leading worship at the time. Um, so we all just stood there, worship ground to a hall, and we looked at one another. Uh, I remember another time there was a, I heard about a guy from the States who was um, preaching something like this, and um, uh, the phone in his pocket rang. And so he picks it up, and he says to the congregation, excuse me a moment, and he answers the phone call and proceeds to speak to the guy on the end of the phone. Uh, and then he hangs up the phone, and I, when I heard that, I thought, gosh, that's terrible. But then what he said next was, uh, forgive me, but that was my son, and I've made an agreement with him that I will always be available to him whenever he needs me. And I went from thinking, that's wonderful, to thinking, maybe that's brilliant. I'm not sure. <laughs> Somewhere in between. We, we rem remember when people do things that are socially unusual. Well, Mary would have done exactly the same thing here. Prioritizing Jesus means making some radical choices. What she did was a beautiful thing, actually, and it confounded everyone's expectations of her. There were so many barriers to being with Jesus, but she chose that that was going to be the thing she did first and foremost. You know, there will always be the pressure of what people think and the pressure of their expectations on us. But if we're like Mary, we've got to recognize what are the distractions and put them to one side in order to favor Jesus first. So what is it that would distract you? Is it practical service, like Mary busy in the kitchen? Or is it the things in the workplace? Is it the constant demands of emails that will never go away? Or is it Facebook and the distractions of that, or Xbox, or tidying your sock drawer? What are the things that drag you away from spending time with Jesus? There's nothing wrong with all of those things apart from possibly the sock drawer thing. But there's nothing wrong with those things in themselves. But when they take the place of Jesus in our lives, then there's a problem. So often, though, it's actually people who draw us away, people who seem to have legitimate needs that will fill up our lives and our diaries if we let them. On my own part, I know about this firsthand because back in 2012, um, I was scheduled to take some time off to take two or three months out on a sabbatical to recharge. And to be honest with you, I really wasn't in a good place emotionally. You see, what had happened was the church had grown very rapidly over a number of years. And when the church was about 150, 200 people, it was okay because I mostly knew what was going on and the big difficult situations that people were facing. And I was able to spend time with people in ones and twos as they had need. But when the church hit three, four, five hundred, I realized that I could no longer keep pace with all that was going on, and the very many legitimate deep needs that people had. And I'd come on a Sunday, and I'd walk around and think, oh, if only I could just spend an hour with you. I'd love to hear how you are and listen to you and pray for you and so on. And I'd walk down a corridor and just be overwhelmed with the level of need. And so then I took some time out, and as many of you all know, Simon went on sabbatical and he invested his time very wisely, and, um, and he studied a lot, and, and he wrote a book. Uh, I went away on sabbatical, and I read a book, um, that was sort of the extent of it, really. Um, but the, the one thing that God did whilst I was away, more than anything else, uh, is he asked me a question. And he said this to me. He said, Paul, who are you working for? Who are you really working for? And as I looked deep into my heart, I realized that I was working for all those people who would get angry if I didn't spend time with them and would feel affronted. And I was working for all those people who would say really nice, affirming things to me if I listened well and was really caring. And I was working for all the people that would send me emails. And I was working flat out for my family in my spare time, trying to meet all of their needs. 
The truth was, I was working for everybody except for Jesus. And they had filled up my life, and it meant that I was at the point of utter exhaustion. You know, we've got to learn what it is to get back to the place where Jesus is the number one priority in our lives. The truth of the matter is, I had many masters, but you and I are designed to live with just one, to serve him first and foremost. You may have a boss at work, and it's right that you respect them and do what they ask, but ultimately, you work for a higher authority. Colossians 3.23 became very precious to me during those days, which says this, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord, not men. We're not meant to work for human masters. Ultimately, you serve him. Jesus says just one thing is needed. Stick close to me. Sit at my feet. Do what I'm calling you to do. And I'm not pretending that this is easy. But I am saying this is the simplest way to live. It's not the easiest but it is the simplest. Choosing to put Jesus first will upset some people. As someone once said, success in life is learning to upset, upset the right people. Being willing to upset the right people. Notice what happens when Mary chooses to put Jesus first. The very first thing that happens is Martha gets really angry with her and tries to get Jesus to tell her off. Her close family members are immediately grumpy and angry with her. You've got to be willing to upset some people if you're going to prioritize Jesus first. Now, I don't mean it be ignorant to their needs, but it's going to reach the point where people will be upset with you, and you have to be okay with that. My guess is that any time, one time in church life, now there are at least four or five people that are angry with me about something at some point. But you have to get to the point where that is okay, because I'm serving Jesus, not men. Someone wisely once said that the Christian life it's not difficult. It's downright impossible. Why? Because this is your job description as a follower of Jesus. To heal the sick, root out spiritual oppression, and raise the dead. Those aren't just difficult tasks. Difficult tasks are things like putting a screen cover on an iPad without getting bubbles in it, or, or, or parallel parking in a tight space, or, or putting wellies on a toddler. Those are difficult tasks. <laughs> Some of you have tried that. This, this is impossible, this stuff. The only way we're ever going to be able to do it is if we stay close to Jesus. We're meant to live supernatural, inexplicable lives that only make sense if people say, there must be a God, because how can they do that? It must be that God is with them. That's the way that we are meant to live. And in order to do that, we need to understand who he is and whose we are. We need to understand who he's made us to be. We have to understand our identity. We have to stay connected to him. And in making that choice, Mary gets her reward. Jesus says, Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. And that word portion is, is a reference back to Old Testament times when essentially it meant your plot of land. It meant your inheritance. Jesus is saying, connecting with him is her inheritance. In other words, the benefit that you and I get is relationship with him. It's connection with him, and it will not be taken away from her. In other words, we get that for eternity. You get to start a relationship with Jesus now that you can enjoy forever, that will bless you and benefit you forever and ever. Ephesians 1.11 says this, In him, this is Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. The prize is him. The goal is knowing him, and that changes everything. It transforms everything. He's the one that will bring you peace. 
He's the one that will bring you purpose and enrichment to your life. He's the one that will provide for you. So let me ask you, how is your relationship with Jesus right now? Where does it fit in your priorities? Is it going okay, or is it being crowded out by all the stuff of life? And you're waiting for when a slower day will come. But of course, a slower day never does come. What are the radical choices you need to make now in order to prioritize Jesus, even if it means upsetting some other people? What are some of the changes that you need to make? Do you need to start taking a daily walk in order to talk with him? Do you need to do something like grab one of the books off the bookstore, or just grab one of these, brilliant commentary by Phil Moore, two pages every day just as a little devotional? Do you need to do something like that? Where is it at? Because if your life with Jesus is being crowded out, well, don't be surprised if that has knock-on consequences for the rest of your life. I want to leave you with the, the choice this morning to carry on under your best efforts, under your own steam, on this treadmill of your own making, or to step off it and say, no, I'm going to prioritize Jesus. I'm going to get time with him, hang the consequences, because I know long term, that's where the pay is. That's what's going to change everything, not just for my life, but all the lives around me. I want to suggest to you that time alone with God is not another thing to do, but rather it's a place that you can go. It's not another thing to do. It's, it's a place that you can go. I see it as a, as a retreat from all the craziness, yeah? Uh, the, have you noticed there are a lot of, you know, crazy people out there? I, I think I'm the only normal one. But and I see it as a retreat away from all of that, a chance to be with him, to be understood by him, and to connect with him, to hear his heartbeat. So in a moment, I'm going to ask some of us to stand. And the, what I want you to do is I want you to stand if this morning... God is speaking to you. You know, this wasn't on the agenda for this morning. It's meant to be Phil speaking this morning. I'm standing in for him. He's got us looking at this. Why? Because he wants to meet with you. There are no coincidences in the kingdom of heaven. There is only God's plan. And he's got us looking at this this morning because this morning he's wanting you to draw a line in the sand. Where before it was trying to meet everybody else's needs. And now he's saying, will you live for an audience of one? Will you live with me as the master of your life? Because that's the way he's formed you to be.